Welcome to the Hillside Podcast. We trust that you'll be impacted by listening to today's message. And all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Isaiah 55 says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Isaiah 42 says, The people whom I formed for myself, that they may declare my praises. Psalm 150 verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord in his sanctuary. Sing, praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. And I've got scripture after scripture after scripture saying the same thing. Psalm 99 verse 5 says, Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. You see, teaching on a topic like worship and encounters is actually really difficult. Because how do you teach on a yearning that your creator placed in you that cannot be satisfied by anything other than standing in awe of him. How do you put that into words? <laughs> you see, every created being was created to be in awe of the creator who stands in awe of his creation. I read a couple of verses there, but how do mountains praise? (laughs) How do trees praise? How do the heavens praise? You see, everything that's created, fundamental, intrinsic DNA, is to stand in awe of its creator, who stands in awe of it. So... You know, we almost like to think that we have a choice of praising and worshiping God. We truthfully don't. If we could sit in silence and just remove the clutter from our lives and not think about the business meetings lying ahead next week and the the home dynamics and if we can strip away all that clutter, what will we find? We will find a deep yearning coming from inside of us that will almost bring us to tears. It is so powerful because it can only be satisfied by connecting with our creator. We don't choose to worship. We almost choose not to. Because we don't choose to worship. That's our DNA. That's what we were created to do. We will worship But we allow our lives to get so filled and so cluttered with noises and regrets and stresses and strains and issues and problems that they really cloud out. 
our real DNA. And if we can unclutter ourselves and unclutter our minds and unclutter our souls and unclutter our spirits, what will we do? We will spend all of creation, all of our time in existence, declaring how incredible he is. And it will be this weird competition because we will be declaring how good he is, but he will be declaring how good we are. And we'll say, no, but you better. And then he'll be saying, no, but you even better than that. And I often choose not to worship him because I choose to worship my issues. I choose to worship my stress. I choose to idolize the problems that I'm facing. But I really am desperate to get to that place where nothing else matters. Stuff is stuff and stuff will come and stuff will go. And this morning the sun's shining and in a few hours it will be dark. And then in a few more hours it will be light again. There's a cycle to life that just continues and, and moves. But our desire to shout out to our Father, our desire to just declare how incredible, how amazing, how uncomprehendable, how beautiful, how awesome, how powerful, how loving, how caring, how perfect He is. I pray that it wakes you up at night. Mm. I pray that you burst into tears in your car on the way to work because you're so overwhelmed by how incredible your Father is. Yes, we have lives, we have duties, we have responsibilities, we have obligations, we have things that need to be done. But they all pale in comparison to a yearning inside of you that nothing and no one can take away. They can cover it in many, 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 many layers and they can dull its sound, but no one can ever take it away because intrinsically you were created and you were created to worship him. Have you got that? Just ask Luke to put together a slide. <laughs> if you understand me and my sense of humor, you'll understand that a bit better. <laughs> There's a quote that's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi that says, um, um, always be witnessing if you have to use words. And there's a big debate about who really said that because no one can actually find whether, uh, whether he really said that. And there's a debate as to, okay, I said that. <laughs> because that's what I truthfully believe when I've allowed myself to get rid of all of the, the clutter. You see, as humans, we love formulas. So what is praise and worship? Well, Praise is a kind of softish, intimate song you sing to God. And worship is when you sing louder. And it's what we do on a Sunday morning. And when we're putting together a set, you need to have two songs of praise and three songs. Absolute hogwash. Absolute rubbish. The biggest load of nonsense that ever existed. <laughs> That's the formula that our minds like. 
Why do people originally, when they have a revelation of healing and all of that, find it so hard? Because we're desperately trying to find the formula that one plus one equals two. Because that's how things are meant to work. No, they're not. You were created to worship God all day, every day, for eternity. The greatest times of encounter I've ever had with God in seasons has been when I've attempted to live that. So how do I worship God in interacting with my wife and my kids as we get them ready for school in the morning? How do I worship God as I drive to work during the day? How do I worship God in the midst of my meeting and dealing with conflict? How do I offer every single act that I do during my day as a sweet, pure, and holy sacrifice towards the one and true God who is worthy of all praise? And that's a question that I want to keep at the forefront of my mind continuously. Let everything I do be done as an act of worship towards him. Let every single thing I do be worthy of being lifted up as a sacrifice towards dad. Because he's worthy of praise. You see, If we go through the Bible and it's a teaching that can be done on definitions of praise and definitions of worship and all of that. But to to come back to what I was saying earlier, maybe to kill a bit of a holy cow. The seven base words that are used, that are translated into what we use as the word worship today. Not one of them refers to music. Not one of them refers to singing. Not one of them refers to a song. If you really want to strip it down, worship is a spiritual act, praise is a physical act. So we can worship God through praising him in song. But we can worship him through... Do you think the mountains have a band? In those scriptures we were... One, two, three, rock and roll, I guess. <laughs> Terrible. Eh? <laughs> but the point I'm wanting to make is we've developed these weird formulas of what praise and what worship is, where actually worship is our life. It's not a certain type of genre of music, it's our life. And it's far easier to worship God than you think. Because you're not doing something, you're actually undoing things. You're just falling back into what you were intrinsically created to do. And getting rid of the other stuff and clutter that's just getting in the way. The other thing that I want to address and discuss is we have a a band that comes up here and plays. And we refer to them as the worship team because it's a good title to give them and it describes who they are. But yes, the worship team. Here's the worship team. Those are the skilled musicians who are helping to facilitate us as a worship team going into encounter with, with God. We have what's known as an encounter team. 
the Esther encounter team. You see, what we've got to break is this consumer mentality that exists in church. Do you know that there's no pavilion in the game of walking with God? There's only a playing field. What do I mean by that? It's not a spectator sport. I will sit back in the pavilion and I will cheer on the holy dozen or 15 or 11 that are chosen. Wow, that's just cuckoo. There is no stadium. There is no pavilion. There is just a field. And we are all participants in that game. When we gather together, come expectant. When we gather together, come hungry. When we gather together, come drunctional. When we gather together, come with a word. When we gather together, come with something to give. Break that mindset of I'm coming to receive something. Best example I've ever heard of that is there's a well-known song that was very popular a few years ago called The Heart of Worship, and it was written by a guy by the name of Matt Redman. And at that time, Matt Redman and Tim Hughes and a few other guys were part of a ministry that I know you know well, um, and now they've just forgotten their name, Soul Survivor with Mike Pilavachi. And there was a season a few years ago where kind of like Two out of every three songs we hear now are kind of Bethel songs. Going back 10, 15 years ago, two out of every three songs you heard were Soul Survivor songs. And Mike Pilavachi had realized that what was happening is this whole consumer mentality was coming into the church. And of course, the musicians were phenomenal. And the worship was incredible. But it became the show that people would come in to watch. So what did Mike Pilavachi do? He closed down every worship team and he took every piece of equipment off the stage. And then he invited the church to come in and worship. Can you imagine coming into worship and there's no one up here? There's not even someone giving you a basic doof, 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 doof. There is absolutely nothing. And hearing people talk about that time, of course it was awkward. It was immensely awkward. But there's something about that awkwardness of silence that if you don't step in to rescue people, they can sometimes step out of themselves. And what happened is, I don't know how many weeks it went on for, but they had week after week after week of incredible worship without any music, without any band, without anyone leading them. And on the first morning when they came in, the question that was asked to the congregation is when you come through the door on a Sunday, 
What are you bringing as your offering towards God? Not what are you coming to consume. Not what are you coming to get. Not what are you coming to see. But what are you bringing as your offering? You see, we've developed these customs and traditions and this, that, and the other. But let's speak openly and honestly. Fundamentally, a Sunday morning is meant to be us gathering and celebrating and sharing the testimonies of the incredible things that God's done in us and through us in the week that has just passed. It's wrong if a Sunday morning is your primary time of worship for the week. It's wrong if a Sunday morning is your primary time of getting the word. This is meant to be an overflow of everything that's happening in our lives. And where we are so excited, we've got so much to give, so much to share, so much to celebrate that no one can hold us back. It's not meant to be, I hold on for dear life for six and a half days of the week and then I come in here. (sighs) There are seasons of that. Of course there are seasons of that. I've come in here on a Sunday morning hanging on the splinter of a nail of a thread. But it can't be like that every single day. Weak, there has to be more. So I call forth that yearning inside of you to praise God with everything that you've got. And I desire to see that displayed when we come together on a on a Sunday. The topic that I kind of want to share on today, I'll call it the ripple effect. The religious spirit likes to disqualify us all the time and likes to disqualify yeah, and prevent us from entering into God. So let me lay a bit of a foundation. Philippians 1, 15 to 18. It's true that there are some who preach Christ out of competition and controversy, for they are jealous over the way God has used me. Many others have purer motives. They preach with grace and love, filling their hearts, because they know I've been destined for the purpose of defending the revelation of God. Those who preach Christ with ambition and competition are insincere. They just want to add to the hardships of my imprisonment. Yet in spite of all of this, I am overjoyed. For what does it matter as long as Christ is being preached? If they preach him with mixed motives or with genuine love, The message of Christ is still being preached and I will continue to rejoice. Why do I share that? I share that because I want to share on the highest level of worshipping God and worshipping God with the purest of heart. But I've seen that sneaky, slew-foot, ugly thing whose name I'd rather not mention like to heap condemnation on people when they go after God. And often when you speak to people about preaching God with a pure heart, what the enemy does is he tells people their heart's not pure. He tells them that their motives are off. 
Well, let me tell you, they probably are. And my motives are probably also off. But we're going after a pure motive. And take Paul's heart here. Where he says, yeah, there's people preaching and they're not preaching with a pure heart. And they've got selfish ambitions and this, that and the other. But I don't care. Because Christ is being preached. So I want to say, I actually don't care why you worship God as long as God is being worshipped. Maybe you're worshipping him with the most selfish of motives on planet earth. But rather worship him. Let your default setting be when in doubt, worship. From the foundation of worship, I will figure out the rest. But I don't want you to come in here on a Sunday and say, Oh, I've just had an argument with my wife and my kids and my heart's not that pure. I can't enter into worship. Rubbish, 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 rubbish. God is worthy of worship and praise, irrespective of what's just happened. Worship Him. Worship Him. Worship Him. Of course we strive to worship him with the purest of hearts and the purest of motives. And that's the goal we go after. But we go after that while worshiping him. And there are many times where I've come in to worship God because I'm desperate for breakthrough. There's many times when I've come to worship God because I'm desperate for an answer. There's many times where I've come to worship God because I just want a half an hour's escape from the stresses and strains that are around me to just catch my breath. But I want to be someone that will always worship him. Are you with me so far? But we do aspire to the highest form of worship, which I would suggest to say is motive-free worship. It's really just our DNA crying out to his DNA because we have no choice but to worship him because he's so incredible. And why do I say we aspire to that? Does it make us purer? Does it make us holier? Does it make us better? No, it doesn't. But it moves us more and more out of the way so that God can do what he wants to do. And what he wants to do is always bigger, bolder, greater than what we desire him to do. So I want to give you what I believe is one of the best examples of that in the Bible. And I'll read to you, you can listen. It's Acts 16, verse 16 to 40. It's the same scripture that Chanel touched on last week. One day, as we were going to the house of prayer, we encountered a young slave girl who had an evil spirit of divination, the spirit of Python. She had earned great profits for her owners by being a fortune teller. She kept following us, shouting, These men are servants of the great high God, and they're telling us how to be saved. Day after day, she continued to do this until Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit indwelling her, I command you in the name of Jesus, the anointed one, to come out of her now. At that very moment, the spirit came out of her. When her owners realized that their potential of making profit had vanished, They forcefully seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the city square to face the authorities. When they appeared before the Roman soldiers and magistrates and slave owners leveled accusations against them saying, these Jews are troublemakers. They're throwing our city into confusion. They're pushing their Jewish religion down our throats. It's wrong and unlawful for them to promote these Jewish ways for we are Romans living in a Roman colony. 
A great crowd gathered and all the people joined in to come against them. The Roman officials ordered that Paul and Silas be stripped of their garments and beaten with rods on their bare backs. When they were severely beaten, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer commanded to guard them. Uh, and the jailer was commanded to to guard them securely. So the jailer placed them in the innermost cell of the prison and had their feet bound and chained. Paul and Silas, undaunted, prayed in the middle of the night and sang songs of praise to God, while others in the prison listened to their worship. Suddenly, a great earthquake shook the foundations of the prison. All at once, every prison door flung open and the chains of all the prisoners came loose. Startled, the jailer awoke and saw every cell door standing open. Assuming that all the prisoners had escaped, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself when Paul shouted in the darkness, Stopped, don't hurt yourself, we're all still here. The jailer called for a light, and when he saw that they were all still in their cells, he rushed in and fell trembling at their feet. Then he led Paul and Silas outside and asked, What must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all your family. Then they prophesied the word of of, of the Lord over him and his family. Even though the hour was late, he washed their wounds. He and his family were baptized. He took Paul and Silas into his home and set them at the table to feed them. And the jailer and all of his family were filled with joy in their newfound faith in God. At daybreak, the magistrate sent officers to the prison with orders to tell the jailer, let those two men go. The jailer informed Paul and Silas and the magistrate had sent orders to release you so you're free to go. But Paul told the officers, look, they had us beaten in public without a fair trial and we are Roman citizens. Do you think we're just going to go walk away after you threw us in prison and violated all of our rights? Absolutely not. You go back and tell the magistrate that they need to come down here themselves and escort us out. When the officers went back and reported that Paul and Silas had told them, the magistrates were frightened. Especially upon hearing that they had beaten two Roman citizens without due process. So they went to the prison and apologized to Paul and Silas, begging them repeatedly, please leave our city. So Paul and Silas left the prison and went back to Lydia's house, where they met with believers and comforted and encouraged them before departing. To set the scene, it was not good, huh? What happened to Paul and and Silas? Beaten, flogged, crowds gathering up against them. Um... The jailer sending them to the innermost cell, having their feet bound and chained. That's not a good place to be, and we're all okay with that, right? You also do a little bit of research as to why is it written in the scripture that it was the innermost cell. Well, the innermost cell is the worst cell in a prison. Firstly, it's physically the innermost, which means there's no light. So you don't know whether it's day, you don't know whether it's night, because it's permanently dark, because there's no windows. Also, in those days, it was before our, our modern days of plumbing. So all plumbing worked with gravity. So your innermost cell was your lowest middle cell where everything flowed to. Are you getting this picture? Now, finding yourself in that situation... I do believe 
that there are many believers who actually would praise and worship in that situation because you don't know what else to do. Hmm? And you're desperate for God to intervene and for God to come and do something. But I want to put it out there today that I'm totally convinced that Paul and Silas did not worship God because they didn't know what else to do and because they were desperate for God to intervene. And why can I say that with such confidence? I can say that by looking at what happened thereafter. If Paul and Silas's goal was purely for their situation to change and for them to be freed, what would they have done when the earth shook and the doors flew open? They would have run out of there as quickly as they possibly could have. They would gone and told everyone of this incredible miracle that God had performed in their lives where he caused an earthquake to happen. These angels came and these doors flung wide open. Over time, the one angel that appeared might have become five angels and the two doors that opened might have become 20 doors and the story would have been embellished and they would probably have been interviewed on Christian TV and they would have had a book launch and it would have been this amazing, incredible testimony of this wonderful man, Paul and Silas, who in the darkest of darkest, they would have had those reenactments that they like sometimes do. Are they awful, huh? God redeem Christian TV and Christian. Different topic. Okay. I venture to say Paul and Silas forgot where they were. They just got lost in praising Dad because of how incredible and how beautiful he is. And why do I say that? Because what did they do when the earth shook and the door flung wide open? Nothing. Because they didn't know what God's desire was for them in that moment. What would have happened if they had fled? The jailer would have committed suicide. Because he was on his way to commit suicide. Instead, Paul shouts out, stop, we're still here. I cannot comprehend how shocked that jailer must have been. It is absolutely illogical for all the prison doors to swing open and for none of the prisoners to leave. And I'm baffled. I can understand Paul and Silas not leaving, but none of the others left I think they were still so caught up in the praise and worship that they didn't even notice that the doors were gone. So because Paul and Silas were just praising God because of who he was, they weren't praising him with an agenda of being set free. What unravels more? The jailer's incredible question to them, what must I do? To be saved. Wow. Go further forward to verse 33. Then he and his family were baptized. Go further forward to verse 34. 
Then the jailer and his entire family were filled with joy. And entire family got saved, baptized, filled with joy versus one man committing suicide. And who knows what the consequence would have been for the rest of his family. Why? Because Paul and Silas's goal wasn't just to get out of their situation. Their goal was just to praise and honor God because he alone is worthy of praise. And Paul and Silas being free would have been phenomenal. But what a man of knowing his identity Paul is when the jailer tells him he's free and he says, whoa, whoa, I'm not going anywhere. Did you see what they did to us? They need to come down here themselves and like they shamed us in public, they need to apologize to us in public. I don't believe he was being vindictive. I don't believe he was looking for revenge, but I totally believe that he knew who he was. And knowing who he was, he knew how he was meant to be treated. So what happens? They come down. They apologize. And they set him free. And then almost a throwaway point at the end and it says and Paul and Silas left the prison and went to Lydia's house do you know that that was the birth of the Philippian church do you know that the first members of the Philippian church were Lydia and the jailer's family how many people have been ministered to set free Delivered, etc., etc., through the scriptures in the book of Philippians that would not have been written if Paul and Silas had hightailed it out of the prison because their only goal in praise and worship was to improve their circumstances. And, and yet again, why do I make that statement so boldly? Well, firstly, it's because I believe I hear the Holy Spirit. And I believe as I was preparing the message that the Holy Spirit highlighted that to me. And then as confirmation, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, Okay, Graham, if you were to think of the book of Philippians to you, what would you say is the pivotal verse that ministers to you the most? And I didn't have to think hard. It's Philippians 4, verse 6 to 7. Then I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, Now go and read that. And read that through the lens of Paul and Silas's situation when they were in the, the innermost cell. Don't be pulled in different directions or worried about a thing. Be saturated in prayer throughout each day. Offering your faithful requests before God with overflowing gratitude. Tell him every detail of your life. Then God's wonderful peace that transcends human understanding will make the answers known to you through Jesus Christ. Isn't that an incredible description of how Paul and Silas responded in that moment? You see, when we get out of the way, 
and just praise God because he's worthy of, of, of praise. What he does and what he's capable of doing, the ripple effect of that action is so far beyond what our actions can do. So can I ask you to be bold enough that when you arrive in any gathering, can you leave your nonsense outside? Can you leave your stress outside? Can you leave your worries outside? Can you leave your to-do list for the Holy Spirit outside? I'll be sneaky. I'll say you can collect it on the way out again. But I know you're going to forget. It's going to end up in lost property. Can you just praise God because he's just worthy of praise? And coming back to the earlier statement, and worship him how you're comfortable worshiping him. Sing as loudly as you want to sing if that's what you want to do. Dance as violently as you want to dance if that's what you want to do. Paint. Prophesy. As I mentioned, the seven core words for worship that we translate into worship, not one of them refers to music. Not one of them, so so why are you limiting yourselves to expressing your love to God through a song? I think songs are great, and I love our times of, of worship here in church where we worship God collectively. But don't limit yourself to that. How would you worship God if music was taken away like they did at Soul Survivor? I don't know. I'm not you. I'd probably lie on the floor and cry a lot. That's just me. Can your baking be an act of worship towards God? You better believe it. Can the way you navigate that stressful thwart with problems, difficult situation at work be an act of worship unto God? You better believe it. May the way you discipline your unruly toddler be an act of worshiping God. You better believe it. May the way you love your wife be an act of worship to God. You better believe it. Let everything that you do, let everything that you do be an act of worship to him. And let the stuff that clogs your mind and clogs your heart and keeps you awake at night, let that stuff fall away. As you just get so captured by his beauty. Then for this morning, I guess just prophetically, and I want to be honoring to the time as well, so I won't go on too much longer. God took me to the Ezekiel dry bones story, and more in detail, he took me to the story of of Lazarus. And the two scriptures highlighted in the story of Lazarus is Lazarus come out of the tomb and unwrap him and let him loose. As we choose to worship God because he is worthy of all honor, glory, and praise, the tomb clothes of death around you, linked to fear, linked to discouragement, 
linked to disqualification are going to unwrap themselves. The dry bones of dreams, goals, ambitions. Many older Christians look back and almost giggle at how naive they were when they were new Christians to have such audacious dreams that were just unrealistic. Now I want to ask the really mature Christians to laugh at those partially mature Christians for thinking that those dreams were unrealistic and audacious. They were small. I truthfully believe that the season we're in as a house, the season we're in as a body, as we come into God to just worship him, to be okay to look like a fool, to be okay to make mistakes because we don't really know what we're doing. We're kind of trying to find ourselves in the space, but we have the boldness to go for it. Those are the things that I see. I see dry bones coming back to life. And what I very powerfully see is people that are so tightly wound by fear, by regret, by past failures, by whatever it might be, I see those grave clothes unwrapping themselves. And not quite unwrapping themselves. There's a word here that says unwrap him and let him loose. Jesus was giving an an instruction. So when you praise God this morning, tomorrow, the next day, etc., Remember the story we've just read about the ripple effect of that worship? I'm trusting that as you praise God, you're going to connect with him incredibly. But even if you don't, trust that the ripple effect of your praise is going to unwrap (laughs) the death cloth. The things that have been holding those people around you hostage is going to help to unwrap that for them. Because your praise and worship isn't just your praise and worship. It has a ripple effect that affects everyone around you. I don't think Paul and Silas in their wildest dreams could have conceived the outcome of their praising and worshiping God in that moment. And I want to prophesy that as you step out in faith, step over your plumb line, be prepared to do things that you're a little bit uncomfortable in doing in terms of praise and worship, that you cannot comprehend what the ripple effect of you doing that is going to be. Coming back to my first statement, praising God isn't really a choice. Not praising him is. Because praising him is just your DNA getting in touch with his DNA and you doing what you were created to do. So it's easy. Are we ready to praise? Can you stand? I want to pray. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I want to trust that you stay in this moment. We've got practical things we need to do. The band needs to come up. We've got some notices that that, that need to be given. That stuff's important. But I pray right now. Fear, go. Go, 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 go. (laughs) Hear what I'm saying through the filter of Christ? (laughs) Dignity, go. Dignity, go. Self-preservation, go. I speak forth a liberty and a freedom 
to get in touch with our roots. And our roots are roots of praise. Dad, let us praise you lavishly. Dad, let us praise you creatively. Dad, let us praise you in ways we've never contemplated praising you before. Dad, let us praise you now. Dad, let us praise you later. Dad, let us praise you tomorrow. Dad, let everything that we do in our lives be an act of praise and worship unto you. Because you are so worthy. And Dad, whether we will ever know where those ripples we are causing end and what they do or not is irrelevant. Because you alone are worthy of praise. You're incredible, Father. We love you, Lord. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your story if you've been encouraged by this episode. You can connect with us on Facebook or leave a review on our podcast. 